Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Connor Matchett. I'm the deputy political editor at The Paper and with me this week, as per usual, back to a full number or whatever the phrase is, is the political editor, Alistair Grant, and political correspondent, Rachel Amory. Welcome to both of you. We'll hear more as well from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, later on, but we'll dive straight into the big story of the day, obviously FMQs early on. Um, Alistair, take us through it. It's yet another day of WhatsApps. Yep, we've had WhatsApps. I think this is week three of this WhatsApps row. And just to refresh people's memories in case they're not keeping up with the ins and outs of Scottish politics in the way that we are, this obviously hit the headlines three weeks ago because at a hearing of the UK COVID inquiry, the Scottish government was criticised for failing to hand over WhatsApp messages. We then had a whole row in the back of that the Scottish Government said it was requesting a legal order to allow it to hand over those messages without having to worry about things like data protection, without getting bogged down and all that kind of thing. That legal order was submitted. The Scottish Government has now handed over 14,000 WhatsApp messages relating to WhatsApp groups, that I think of three or more people that had at least one civil servant or special advisor in them. So it's a very particular set of WhatsApp messages they've handed over. But then on the back of this, we've had a kind of row about when the Scottish Government was asked to hand over these WhatsApp messages and this perception that they've not been entirely helpful to the inquiry. And today, at First Minister's Questions, the Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, was essentially pointing out that last week at FMQs, Hamza Yusuf had said that the Scottish Government was only asked for the content of these messages in September. Mm -hmm. So it was asked to outline kind of the names of WhatsApp groups, the the members of said groups in, in June, but it's only asked for the content in September. And then essentially, from what we understand, the UK COVID inquiry must have got in touch with the Scottish Government on the back of this and asked them to actually provide a clarifying timeline of exactly what they were asked and when. That was released last night, just after 5pm by the Scottish Government. And that timeline shows that they were actually asked for at least some WhatsApp messages back in February. February. So some months before they had at least led us all to believe that they were asked for them. So Douglas Ross very much accusing Hamza Youssef and his deputy Shona Robinson of misleading the parliament. He'd actually used the phrase lying before that. He didn't say that in parliament, but misleading essentially comes to the same thing as far as the Scottish Conservatives are concerned. He accused him of holding Holyrood and grieving families in contempt for this behaviour. And Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, raising an issue very much linked to this about 
The Scottish Government's apparent reluctance so far anyway to hand over unredacted legal advice to the inquiry. There seems to be some kind of manoeuvring going on behind the scenes to allow them to hand that over in a form that might perhaps prevent all of it being published or something like that. But it's just this narrative of secretiveness and this narrative that the Scottish Government has said, you know, from, from way back that it would be, you know, fully transparent, that it would cooperate fully with the inquiry. And now we had Humza Yusuf admitting today in Parliament that when it got those initial requests back at the beginning of the year, that it interpreted them too narrowly, was the word he used. So it's, it's kind of admitting that the way they approached it wasn't correct. And the best thing about the story is that it's very simple to understand and easy to follow. Yeah, imagine <laughs> trying to write an intro about this uh, half-five yesterday when you're thinking about how, how would someone understand this if they hadn't, didn't know anything about this story in the past couple of weeks. I, I think it's fair to say that this is, this is a story that's obviously already run for three weeks. It's going to continue going. Let, let's distill it down to its kind of constituent parts, which is fundamentally this is a question about whether or not the Scottish Government have something to hide around COVID and also whether or not we can trust the word of the Scottish Government, not only now, but also in the past during COVID. Rachel, how, how do you think Hamza Yusuf in particular is coping with the focus on this stuff, which ultimately is making him look like he is not being straight with the Scottish people? I think that's the biggest problem right now is because there is all this fury and there is all this uncertainty and complexity to it all, we just don't know what it is that is happening within the government or what did happen in the government during the pandemic. You know, if these messages had just been handed over when they were asked for, you know, we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. We'd be talking about something something else instead. So the fact that it's sort of a problem they've created themselves, it seems to be, I think that's sort of the biggest problem here for them. But yeah, when that comment Alistair was saying about interpreting the inquiry's request too narrowly, I mean, there's lots of shaking of heads and tutting and sighing from the opposition benches at that, wasn't there? There was a lot of unhappiness at that particular point. And it's fair to say, I mean, that not to bore you at home too much, but, you know, having done a lot of freedom of information requests, that actual response came as very little surprise to me, because often you see the Scottish government see and kind of interpret a request for information in the most narrow way or the most legalistic manner that it possibly can. Now, I would argue that they've been doing that for years to just basically they'll interpret it in whatever way that helps them hand over as little information as, as humanly possible. The Scottish Information Commissioner has you know chastised them for this in the past. They know that this is an issue with their own approach to information provision. But Alistair, I mean, the, the UK COVID inquiry is going to keep running on. Do, do we think that there's a systemic issue here with the Scottish government. You mentioned legal advice, and Asawa brought that up today. You know, the suggestion that unredacted legal advice was requested and hasn't been provided, and that there's various things going on in the background that that could change how that is going to be presented to the inquiry. But fundamentally, it, it screams a government that does not want certain things, whatever they are, because we've no idea what, what the content of these messages are or whatever, becoming public. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem the, the government have had in the past. I mean, they're in real danger of creating a perception that they're playing kind of legalistic word games in relation to an inquiry into a pandemic that killed thousands upon thousands of people. So I think there's, there is a problem there. I think it's, it's probably important to say that the UK government has come under, you know, criticism in its own way for its handling of this. And we've seen what's been coming out of the UK COVID inquiry in relation to them. I don't think this kind of unwillingness to be fully transparent is unique to the Scottish government. 
the Welsh government going through similar similar discussions as well. Yeah, in relation to COVID WhatsApps as well. So I think it, I think it is a problem. The problem for the Scottish government is they've got into a situation where the rhetoric around this has been very much that we're going to be totally open. Uh, I mean, they said this during the pandemic when they were the first to kind of start kind of moving ahead with their own Scottish inquiry, which is obviously kind of in the process of getting up and running in terms of public hearings in Scotland. We've had some of the kind of initial moves there. But when you're kind of talking the talk, you've got to then walk the walk. And I think the problem is that they often don't seem to. There certainly is a perception. You can see that through Jamie Dawson, the kind of senior lawyer on behalf of the, the COVID inquiry. There's a real sense that the inquiry's legal team is extremely frustrated with the pace that the Scottish government has been moving in some of these issues. And I think if you look at the, the timeline that was published, which you can read on the Scottish Parliament's website, it just does seem to be the case that they, it was kind of like drawing blood from a stone in a way, that they had to keep going back to the Scottish government and clarifying certain things that they put in this request in February and were left in the situation in the summer where they were, yeah, again, asking for, you know, even just basic information about who might have been in WhatsApp groups yeah. before then requesting the messages. And we had a briefing after First Minister's questions today with Hunter Yusuf's spokesman in which, again, there just doesn't seem to be much light being shed on anything. And, and, and Rachel, do you, how much do you think this is damaging Hamza Yusuf personally? He's obviously, you know, <laughs> I think for... Problems that he himself has created have probably been on, you know, you could probably count three or four, maybe max, since he's become first minister. But in terms of problems that keep flying at him that are probably go back to either previous first ministers or are out of his control or entirely, he seems to have had a significant run of bad luck. So to a degree, when it rains, it pours. But how much do you think he is taking a personal hit due to what Alice has said, you know, that rhetoric earlier on in the year not being matched by action. Well, well, yes, I mean, there is, like you said, a lot being um, thrown at him from things that were before he was First Minister, of course. But you also need to remember he was Health Secretary during the pandemic as well. It's one of the most senior positions in the government, very much on the front line there. We saw him doing some COVID briefings as well. He was very much the face, as well as Nicola Sturgeon, during the pandemic of the government. So... There is also got to be some responsibility there mm. too, because it, it I mean, health secretary is no, no, not you know, not a throwaway position, is it? It's a very, very big position, particularly during a pandemic. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to a different story about a different cabinet secretary for health, which is Michael Matheson, who this week reported a eleven thousand pound mobile phone bill charged to the Parliament ostensibly for using it on holiday in Morocco for parliamentary business. First and foremost, Alistair, £11,000 is a lot of money to rack up on any mobile phone bill. I think I'd find that quite difficult to do at the best of times. What was his response after First Minister's questions? He was doorstep by some journalists. Yeah, so I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of money. So he's basically, like you say, he's racked up this bill of nearly £11,000 on roaming costs on his Parliament iPad while on holiday in Morocco. Uh, I'm laughing because it just seems so absurd. Uh, so he says that it was essentially a device he was using for parliamentary work, for presumably constituency work, and that he had not switched over to Holyrood's current mobile provider, current mobile contract. So he was hit with these kind of roaming charges. And essentially, I think he was, as you say, he was doorstep by journalists after FMQs. I was actually in the, the rival doorstep that was going on with Hamza Yusuf after FMQs. But I understand that he just repeated that defence, essentially. that That is his defence. And I think the parliament uh, has said that they tried to 
kind of challenge the amount of money with the mobile provider? Yeah, so it was EE beforehand, um, whereas they've now switched to Vodafone, so it would have been EE that... Um, Not sponsored, we should say. And, Not sponsored, you know, of course. EE haven't paid us to rip off Vodafone or, whatever, or vice versa. Yeah, so the, I think the Parliament tried to challenge this and the mobile provider was essentially like, no. So they've been left to this bill of £11,000. I think the conversation now particularly when you look at the opposition from the Scottish Conservatives' point of view, from Labour's point of view, is why should the taxpayer have to foot such a, you know, a sizable bill for what essentially looks like a bungle on behalf of Michael Matheson? And I think there's also questions. I don't know much, to be honest, about data roaming and what, what kind of, you know, how you kind of rack up bills in terms of what, what might have contributed to that cost. But it seems such a high figure that there's questions over what, what he was doing on the iPad, I guess. You know, was it, was it all constituency work? Was there... What kind of consistency work was it? I think there are quite a lot of questions. And Rachel, we asked the question of the First Minister's spokesperson about whether or not Michael Matheson maybe watched a few Netflix shows while he was over in Morocco. And the answer was that they weren't aware of that being the case. It feels like, as Alistair says, that we need a few answers as to what exactly he was doing. Although the Parliament seemed pretty happy with the fact that it was all kosher. Yeah, I mean, with the size of that bill, I think, I know when I go on holiday, for example, I'm very aware of data roaming charges. It's one of the first things that you think about because immediately as soon as you land, you get the text message. I was thinking back in the summer, actually, I was in holiday in Greece with my friends, out on a boat, and we must have gone into Turkish waters because they then all got a ping on our phone saying, oh, welcome to Turkey, I own this other data roaming charge. And we all immediately panicked and Mm. turned our phones off. And so... Why is that level of awareness of the data roaming charges not been the case here for Michael Matheson in Morocco? But also as well, he was only away for a week. I mean, was he actually enjoying his holiday? What was he doing? (laughs) (laughs) What was the point in being there if you're just going to spend the whole time on your iPad? I think think someone did the maths and it was something around like £65 Mm -hmm. an hour every every hour hour for the entire holiday. That's a lot of emails. That is an awful lot of emails and not a lot of sunbathing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's just an incredible amount of money to to rack up there. So as you were saying, I think it's about £3,000 is coming out of Michael Matheson's expenses and the rest is all going to be footed by the Parliament, which does mean it is taxpayers' money that is essentially going towards this. And he's a cabinet secretary as well. You know, their, their, their salary hasn't gone up hugely in recent years due to kind of a self-imposed freeze, but it's not like he couldn't pay the money back if he so chose. And Rachel, quickly, we also had a pro-Palestinian protest today yes, that was unexpected. in the parliament, which was quite amusing given our colleagues at the Press and Journal, their window looked directly over to where they ended up being and they didn't even spot them walking onto the roof. Yes. So t- take us through what happened and why they were there. Yeah, well, it kind of came out of the blue. We kind of got messages from other people saying, oh, by the way, did you know there's some protesters on the roof? And so immediately we all flocked outside to see what the what was happening. And yes, pro-Palestinian protesters had erected a Palestinian flag, a banner as well that said, stop arming Israel. And we managed to speak to one of them who was called Jack. And she was saying that they decided to do it because they'd seen a call to action from the Workers for Palestine group though they themselves are not part of that group. And yeah, they've been up there all day. They've been having cups of tea. They've got sandwiches up there. They seem quite happy just to stay there for as long as they can. And the ladder. Yeah, we were actually very impressed with the ladder. It's actually quite well thought out. It looked custom built. It did. It did look custom built. We actually thought it was part of the Parliament building at first, not realising that it was something they'd brought from home. And and Rachel, you've also been speaking to Megan Gallagher, Mm. um, who's deputy leader for the Scottish Conservatives. 
Yes, I spoke to her earlier this week just a bit about her politics, what policies she's wanting to champion, um, particularly now that she's um, the deputy leader of the party. In particular, she's very keen to speak about childcare and childcare policies. Um, She, of course, does have a very young daughter, I think it's 15 months old, called Charlotte. So um, a, a quick clip here of what she said. a lot to adjust to coming back to, to work as a mum and I know mums you know, across Scotland will be able to sympathise with that it's a whole new experience coming back you've got that apprehension you know, coming back knowing that your, your child is either going to a nursery setting being at home with family members or friends and there is that, that worry at the start but for, for me in Parliament there's been that additional issue because I need to leave for work so early in the morning I can't actually find a childcare setting that I can drop Charlotte off as early as, as before eight in the morning. So I'm either having to make the, the decision of do I bring Charlotte to work or do I try and find a family member who will be able to look after Charlotte. Now, I'm lucky. I've got an excellent family network and Charlotte will always have somewhere to go. But it doesn't solve the problem of the, the creche not being opened in Parliament. So we can't even get childcare right in the heart of our democracy. So how on earth can we get childcare right in the outside world for parents across Scotland? And I think that's a, a message that we really need to fix and fix quickly. I think there's a lot that we can do in terms of improving childcare throughout Scotland. But for me, I think the principle is that we need to get the childcare system working so parents can go to work, know that their child is safe in a childcare setting because that has excellent opportunities to to grow our economy but again just to get people back into that workforce because as we've seen with campaigns recently parents are now deciding to to stay at home instead of going out to work because childcare is, is unaffordable and I think that's a really sad state for our country to be in so I think we need to make sure that we're having our childcare options open to parents at the, um, for their children earlier so from nine months on to, to match what the UK government's announcement was recently but also to make sure that the childcare policy policy works because as it stands under the SNP, our early year settings, our nurseries are closing their doors because the, the SNP have failed to back our private voluntary and, and independent sector. So there's a lot that we can do in childcare. And of course, with the general election coming up next year, I had to obviously ask her about what she thinks the party's prospects will be. She's actually fairly optimistic about the Conservative Party's prospects. We'll have a listen here. I'm feeling optimistic here in, in Scotland. I think we've got a really strong message that we can send out to, to voters. We'll be targeting seats right across Scotland. So I, I think there, there will be a good sound message from the Conservatives come the next general election. But we know that Labour has been flip-flopping over various different policies, you know, from oil and gas. One minute they're supportive, next minute they're not. When it comes to gender recognition reform, one minute they're supportive, next minute they're not. So they don't really know what they stand for. And I think the public will pick up on that, especially in the run-up to the general election. I think we'll get fed up with Labour not being able to give a key message to them by the time that that general election clacks and goes. So I think even though the, the polls might be in their favour just now, a lot can happen between now and then. We've got a full interview with Megan Gallagher coming out this weekend in The Scotsman, so keep an eye on that. You can forget the full lowdown of what she said. And talking of general elections, Alex Brown, our Westminster correspondent down in the House of Commons, was listening in to the King's speech earlier this week. Here's his latest dispatch on all things Westminster. Hello and welcome to the Westminster Section podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. And in a week that we have had the King's speech delivered, the first speech by King for 70 years, 
it is quite telling that our top news line is no policy, nothing substantial to talk about in that. It wasn't new. We knew everything in advance. There were no rabbits. There was nothing being pulled out of a hat. And instead, the clear main story of the week is Suella Braverman and her potential future as Home Secretary. It's long been known that Miss Braverman is on manoeuvres and trying to position herself as the candidate to replace Rishi Sunak after the next general election. This was something that overshadowed Tory party conference, which meant every conversation that wasn't about HS2 was about Miss Braverman, with MPs using lots of colourful language that they wouldn't put their names to, but were happy to have anonymously because they all uniformly hate and are very, very angry with her, putting her own prospects ahead of the party. This row began after she wrote an article for The Times in which she called the pro-Palestine marches hate marches. She compared them to marches during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Most damningly of all for her and for number 10, she called into question the police and said they were showing bias towards the pro-Palestine marches. Now, all of that in itself is pretty horrible, pretty unprofessional and unbefitting of office. But the problems emerge given that one of the, one of the rules uh, under the ministerial code is everything has to be approved by number 10. This was not approved by number 10. In fact, the article we understand was sent to number 10. They suggested edits. We think they were ignored. Downing Street said they're now investigating, which seems like quite a straightforward investigation. Did you see the piece? Are you happy with that bit to go in? If it didn't go in, the Home Secretary has directly disobeyed Downing Street. It's a breach. Saki Saki. It's unclear if that's going to happen. The, the real issue for Rishi is he's perceived as weak. But to sack his Home Secretary would be very, very damaging. But also ZNMB is calling for it. I've had numerous former ministers and indeed current ministers tell me today, at the time of recording, it's late on Thursday evening, that it is time for her to go. She's not an asset to the party uh, and actually is detrimental to their chances of winning the next election. There are others who think differently. Miriam Cates, who's never knowingly on the left of any argument, has said that the Home Secretary is just speaking to views shared by the vast majority of the population, ignoring the fact that all polling shows she's incredibly unpopular and these aren't the views of them. But the key issue is Downing Street said don't do that and she's done it anyway. That shows the lack of respect for Downing Street, it shows a lack of strength and belief in Rishi Sunak and shows perhaps that this could be finally, finally after getting her, spe her speeding uh, fine the time that Miss Braverman is finally forced out. At the time of recording, we're not expecting anything more to happen on that. But over the weekend, there will be lots and lots of speculation. And indeed, a planned reshuffle for later in the year, uh, if not in the new year, is now possibly going to be brought forward as soon as next week. So Downing Street is having real conversations about what to do about Braverman. And the question for Sunak is, as it has been for many months, how to solve a problem like Suella? So thank you very much, Alex, for that. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us on the Steamy this week. Thank you very much at home for listening. We'll be back next week, as always. Hopefully not with another week dedicated to WhatsApps, but there's no way we can guarantee that, sadly. So thank you very much, both of you. Thank you very much at home for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.